The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. There are lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio from the Global News Radio studios in Toronto with Hi-Fi Portfolio Managers. Here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, good evening, my good friends. It is Saturday night, so uh, let's get off to a good start and look for some of those wonderful companies to invest in. Uh, you know, if you invest in great companies, you can hopefully reduce some of the market stress that the market is always going to give us with its daily moves. Wonderful businesses remain wonderful businesses that survive the test of time. Uh, decades anyways, uh, months, years, uh, let's extend our time horizon. And uh, let's look at Google. Right? I've, been, I've been involved in trading Google for 20 years and it continues to be the dominant search uh, engine. Uh, Michael Graham knows Google best. Uh, he's a managing director, senior equity analyst with Canaccord, working in the United States of America under, of course, a new presidency. Uh, I have to ask you, Michael, um, uh, if, if I may, uh, are you feeling uh, feeling good about the new presidency? Is it, is it going to be okay for your sector? Again, regulation, control, antitrust, uh, you know, your, your sector has always been front and center in that. And of course, with uh, concerns around censorship and the likes, uh, why don't you start speaking to that to begin with? Yeah, Wolfgang, thanks for, thanks for having us on. Uh, nice to be here as always. Um, you know, I think historically, uh, I, you've had um, Democratic uh, presidencies have, have, I think, not been as good for the stock market in general as Republican presidencies. But overall, um, I think that, um, you know, there are two good things that are sort of going to you know, be front and center here going forward. One is that um, it does feel as if um, a lot of folks are just sort of getting back to business now that the election is over and, and, and all that uncertainty is out of the way. Uh, and the second thing is, um, I do think that um, there were some sharp uh, criticisms uh, in the government in general directed towards the large cap Internet. Uh, you know, it's coming from a lot of different angles. I sort of feel like that might dissipate slightly um, and maybe be slightly less organized uh, going forward. So I think we feel you know, pretty constructive about the um, political backdrop. Some of the things are not going to go away. Uh, you know, there are some state by state measures being levied at a couple of the company companies in our coverage that probably will uh, persist. Um, but in general, you know, we're feeling uh, pretty good about that. And I also know um, that we're going to be um, speaking about crypto, too. And I think that, you know, from that perspective, I think the government setup seems to be fairly constructive as well. Well, again, crypto is, is a fascinating space. And, you know, you've done a very good job educating the folks at Canaccord, uh, Michael, uh, about crypto. What she was, I don't know, six, seven years ago, you're on blockchain and, and, and its uh, relevance uh, to the world on a go forward basis. So certainly look forward to talking crypto with you as well. But uh, again, you cover a lot of very timely uh, companies, uh, including uh, Airbnb, DraftKings, uh, Facebook, uh, Lyft, uh, Netflix, uh, even Peloton, uh, Uber. Uh, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a very exciting uh, coverage universe that you have, Michael. Um, uh, highlights, where, you know, where do you want to begin? Which name is most exciting for 2021 uh, on your list? Well, so one thing I'll just uh, clarify for a minute is, um, 
you know, we, we, uh, I cover the space jointly with my colleague Maria. So some of those stocks you listed, she's primary coverage on and some I am on, but, um, I think that in general, you know, we've got a really great outlook, uh, for, um, for the, for the year. Uh, maybe if I could, I'll, I'll hand it off to Maria to, to kind of go over the broad brush strokes of our, of our 2021 outlook. And then we can dig into some of those stocks because a lot of those stocks you mentioned working are some of our, some of our best ones. All right, let, let me bring Maria up. Let me do my job here. Then Maria Rips, Director, Senior Research Analyst, covering the internet sector, 10 years of uh, experience, uh, domestic and international in tech, media, and telecom. Oh, TMT, I haven't heard that in about 20 years. That uh, acronym came to the forefront. Uh, Maria, again, welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio, right-hand person with uh, Michael Graham. It's a pleasure to uh, be speaking with you in 2021. Uh, hi, uh, Wolfgang. It's, uh, it's good to be on. Thanks for having us. So maybe I'll start with sort of a broader thoughts on the space, and then we'll talk about some specific uh, names, but uh, generally a lot of interesting things are happening in the space. Uh, so 2020 was a really strong year for our sector, which was up on average about 100%. And uh, about 12 out of 25 covered stocks that we covered uh, delivered over 100% upside last year. So that performance was driven, uh, driven both by upward estimate revision uh, over the course of 2020, especially for names like Peloton and Etsy, but also a lot of stocks benefited from very healthy multiple expansion uh, as investors, as you know, assign higher long-term growth rates to many of our companies. Uh, fundamental backdrop remains very strong. I'll just highlight two, two key areas here. So digital advertising is now over 50% of total ad spend, but still wow. needs to shift online. Yeah, and uh, we expect mid-teens growth over the next couple of years still. Uh, e-commerce, another huge area, uh, is still just under 20% of total, so very early in the digital transition. And while- Yeah, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna Maria, if you don't, I wanna jump in right there, because you're making a very interesting point here. Isn't it remarkable, and it's, it's ironic, I used to be a radio rep. I sold advertising uh, for radio yeah. stations, and it was a lot of fun. Um, and yet I've been watching um, online retail really for 20 years when TMT was created and internet sites were, were uh, evolving. Uh, of course, traditional retail 20 years ago was worried about clicks, uh, clicks um, versus bricks. And uh, it, to, to garner a 20% market share, uh, it is fascinating of a massive sector of all of retail combined, but advertising to be able to garner 50% market share digital uh, in, in such short scope, I think that's incredibly, uh, well, threatening to traditional and impressive for digital. Yeah, I mean, on advertising, I mean, uh, digital started shifting, advertising started shifting to digital a little earlier. And uh, in terms of e-commerce, they're just like have to be a little bit more sort of there has to be sort of infrastructure in place to enable this. And what we've, saw, uh, what we've seen with COVID essentially over the course of like six to nine months, we saw e-commerce uh, uh, adoption uh, going from roughly 15% to 20%. Like wow. Five points, four or five points of adoption and prior to, uh, to COVID. Uh, yeah, that's incredible. E-commerce penetration was shifting at, at the rate of roughly like one percentage points per year. So we got this like an adoption curve that uh, moved ahead by like four or five years over the course of six months. 
Yeah, we're no remarkable. I, I see more delivery trucks now than ever. In fact, the traffic on my street is by delivery trucks. It's, <laughs> it's just a whole new world. It's not friends visiting you. No, it's a UPS. It's FedEx. Oh, Amazon's arrived. I can't wait. Anyways, it's fun. It's different. It is what it is, eh? Um, uh, so within your, let's, let's jump over, if you don't mind, uh, Maria, to uh, Netflix. Uh, they reported quarterly results this week. Uh, and again, folks, you're just tuning in. This Saturday night shows Hi-Fi Radio. It's a show about money. I'm Wolfgang Klein, Portfolio Manager. Jack Hartle in for your cause. Of course, any questions, uh, WolfgangKlein.com is your portal for financial guidance. And uh, any questions, you can always reach out to Jack and I. Uh, Maria Rips and Michael Graham are two of our key analysts working in the United States. I'm delighted to be able to have access to U.S. analysts. It's a rare commodity these days. Um, but uh, Maria covers Netflix. Netflix reported amazing quarterly results. They continue to add new subscribers. I think that they end up at, what is it, Maria, 8 million new subs versus estimates of uh, 3 to 5 million new subs? Uh, that's right. So uh, they added over 8 million subscribers. Uh, guidance was for 6 million subscribers. Uh, I think there were two key milestones that we learned last night. One is the company surpassed 200 million global subscribers. That's a huge number. Yep. And what, what, what's really important is uh, uh, more mature regions, like more mature countries like the U.S. and Canada, where investors have been talking about situation for a long time, came in well ahead of estimates, despite recent price increases in those countries. And secondly, uh, the key uh, takeaway from last night was the company's statement that they're very close to being sustainable uh, cash flow positive on a sustainable basis. And they're becoming self-funding, which means they will no longer rely on external financing. And, this, and that's a huge point for a company like Netflix, where for a long time there was a debate of whether the company can uh, borrow and uh, kind of spend money on original content and, be, and do it on a, uh, on a sustainable basis, right? And yesterday the management told us that they will be returning some of the capital back to shareholders in the, in the form of share repurchases. And I think this was something that investors didn't anticipate and investors are going to take very positively. Well, again, I think back to Amazon and how many years Amazon has lost money. And the world said, will Amazon ever make any money? And in 2000, Amazon looked real expensive at 98, 99. Amazon looked expensive at what, Jack? $95? Uh, <laughs> Fast forward 20 years, an unbelievable moat, unbelievable dominance. Um, and, and that's what this world is all about. The, 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 these dominant players uh, take over a sector or create a new sector, and they remain massively dominant. Uh, it is a fascinating world, uh, and it's a delight to be able to have Michael Graham uh, and Maria Rips, two of our key analysts working in the United States of America. Um, we're going to take a quick short break, uh, check in with Jack, of course, my right-hand man, and uh, carry on the discussion about uh, TMT. Money. Let's take a break. But after, Wolf and Jack will continue their in-depth discussion about money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hi-Fi Radio, show about money, and uh, of course, money is fluid. 
investments are fluid, business is fluid, and uh, well, it keeps evolving, and that's what makes it so exciting, and well, it requires attention, and that's what Jack and I do. We pay a lot of attention to a lot of different things to help us better make financial decisions on behalf, well, of you, uh, the listener, and of course, our dear clients who, uh, well, give us the privilege of managing their wealth for them. Of course, if you're ever looking for some wealth guidance, Jack and I may be your team. Uh, the Wolf on Bay Street, of course, uh, WolfgangKlein.com is where you can get all kinds of information on us and uh, make contact. We're always happy to uh, share thoughts with our friends and listeners. Um, great uh, list of company coverage that uh, we're going to be diving into a little more in the show here. Uh, companies like Spotify, Lyft, uh, Netflix, Peloton, uh, Wayfair, Zylo, Uber, DraftKings. It, 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 it's just a very dynamic space with lots of uh, moving parts. Um, let's move over, if we may, um, Michael and Maria. Um, DraftKings, which of you covers DraftKings? Why don't you share with us the, uh, the business model behind uh, DraftKings, maybe a little bit of a history as to where it came from and what the opportunities are for the uh, online uh, gaming portal. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's one of our, you know, ones that investors really like to talk about a lot. Uh, Wolfgang, you know, DraftKings has just a lot of dynamic things going on. And one of the, one of the really um, great things about that story that we like is that we feel like the company has really adopted this digital disruptor philosophy. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Amazon and Google earlier as companies, and Netflix as well as companies who had invested a lot over the years in their product, and that really created um, you know a competitive advantage that could be sustained. And we see that evolving with DraftKings. And essentially, you know, we're talking about the market for online sports betting. Uh, Americans love to bet on sports. Um, it's a really big market, but it all happens either in Las Vegas casinos or illegally with bookies. And it's this market that, um, you know, is slowly being legalized for online sports betting. You know, in each state, I think we have 13 or 14 states now that have legalization measures in place and another, you know, handful that are sort of in progress. And as this happens, Americans are going to be able to go online or go on their app on their phone and, and bet on an NFL football game, uh, you know, right there. And, um, you know, this is something that's a big trend. It's been uh, legal in New Jersey for two or three years now, and the numbers are just astonishing. And so a lot of other states like New York uh, are looking at New Jersey and saying, wow, they are generating a lot of tax revenue uh, here from this activity, and we need to try to follow suit. So we see a, a really big market opportunity going forward. You know, there are, you know, a bunch of players, you know, here, um, but, you know, we think DraftKings is going to be uh, a, a long-term leader. One of the really key things here is they, are, they, they made a technology acquisition before um, they sort of entered the public markets, which they did by a SPAC transaction, which is an increasing trend that I'm sure, you know, you're, you're focused on. But um, they bought this technology company that is going to allow them to offer more live in-game bets. So, you know, an example would be not if this team is going to win the football game, but, you know, on this drive, is this field goal going to go through the upright, uprights? Or if they're watching Tiger Woods play golf, it's like not whether he will win the tournament, but will his next shot hit the green? And you can bet on that. And so what it does is it drives fan <laughs> engagement, and it also drives bets that DraftKings has a better chance of setting odds that are profitable to it. Um, you know, and a little bit less profitable to the bettor. So 
it's okay, Michael. I got this vision. I got this started. vision of Fred. Sorry, Michael. I got and, and there's a bit of a delay in our uh, communication tool here. We're all remote, so I apologize for that. Uh, but I just had this vision of Fred Flintstone. Bat, 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 bat. Eh? <laughs> you, you you remember that scene? You you remember that scene, don't you? I do. Oh yeah, a, um, a classic. Yeah. Oh my, Tiger Woods. Is he going to make the putt? That's a Jack. What do you think of that? I don't know, Wolf. All I'll say is, you know, people uh, love sports. Americans love sports, obviously. But um, the fact that you can make those types of bets, it's astounding. But the other thing I think that's really pushing some of these um, these gaming companies or these uh, online betting companies, there's stimulus checks in the mail right now, $600. And Joe Biden wants to send out, I think, uh, $2,000 in total. So my question to you, Mike, would be, how much of this um, betting is going on just with some of these stimulus checks? And then the other part of it is, how much of it is actually people betting on the stock that are doing it through an online brokerage account? A small retail investor, well, that is. Yeah, I mean, I think for the sports betting, Jack, you know, I think we're pretty much still in the early adopter phase of the market penetration. So even in New Jersey, where we've been for a long time, you know, we really only have like sports betting enthusiasts that are engaging, you know, right now. So I think those folks are betting regardless of stimulus checks. Um, you know, I, I, I think that over time uh, we'll be getting into the mass market where a stimulus check here or there might make a difference. You know, when it comes to uh, investing in stocks, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, like the stock market, it keeps going up uh, and, you know, folks are going to have, you know, a little bit of extra cash. And I think a lot of those, you know, will be, um, you know, will be looking to save and invest. So that could potentially be, you know, a nice tailwind. Why don't we yeah, jump over to a stock that we just picked up, um, Airbnb. Uh, I went through your work, uh, Michael, on it. Um, uh, is it sorry, Michael, that, that's your baby, right, Airbnb? Yes, sir. Yep. Yeah, yep. I, I went through your, 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 your work on it on the weekend, and you, you, you really covered off all the bases. Uh, it's, it's a great research package. Thank you very kindly for, for your thoughts and theses on the stock. Um, Long term, looks like a winner. Uh, my... Fear, concern is I overpaid for the stock in the short term. Um, why do you speak about maybe the lockup in the shares? Uh, what type of risks <laughs> perhaps I, I'm going to uh, uh, have in front of me uh, with the name, but uh, ultimately with longer term, uh, do you think it's going to be a winning brand that's going to uh, generate free cash flow and, and, and see a higher share price? Yeah, this is certainly, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Amazon looking expensive, you know, way back when. And, um, uh, you know, I think there are some parallels for Airbnb. Certainly, there was a ton of enthusiasm on the first day uh, the IPO, you know, priced and started trading, and the stock was up, you know, over 100%. Um, it's got a premium uh, valuation right now. Uh, you know, we we think that's warranted. Uh, we think there's a lot of growth ahead. We think there are some really good, you know, sources of potential upside to estimates uh, here over the next couple of years. And as you know, with a growth stock, Upward estimate revisions is the key to keeping those stocks moving higher. Um, you know, one of the big things is that uh, right after the COVID pandemic hit and the company went through a, a few uh, months where volumes were really down, uh, then they snapped back aggressively. And um, a big reason for that was folks were working from anywhere. Uh, and so they were, you know, renting out Airbnbs to go and work for a little while just to get out of the house. Uh, when all everyone was working remotely. So that was all domestic travel, and domestic travel bounced back. But international travel, which was 
nearly half of the mix for Airbnb pre-pandemic hasn't really come back at all. So the business has rebounded really well. When international travel comes back as the pandemic lifts, uh, we think there's going to be a lot of a lot of tailwinds for Airbnb's business. And just another quick mention, you know, you talked about competitive advantage. And for Airbnb, what we really see is that the company is going to be very successful in uh, accumulating all of the inventory that's out there. You know, um, 21% of people who um, rent out an Airbnb later become a host and actually rent out their own apartment or house or whatever, or property. So what we see is this incredible sort of organic growth in the amount of inventory where people want to put that inventory on Airbnb because they trust the platform. So we see that as the company's long-term competitive advantage and we're, you know, long-term super bullish on the, uh, on the opportunity. So I, I, here's an interesting point I'm going to make is, 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 is a good friend of mine and, 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 and a business client, they've been on the radio publicly stating that, um, Islam Development. And, and, and speaking of one of the uh, key partners within the company, uh, they, they indicate they're, they're, a, they're a condominium developer, Michael, in, in, in Toronto and in Canada. And uh, they have had a lot of issues with um, uh, Airbnb and the likes uh, with, with units that are ending up in the uh, pool and attracting less desirable tenants and, and, and wreaking some havoc to the point that they have uh, worked with, the, well, each of the condominium corps that I think they create restricts uh, Airbnb, and I think there's some restrictions in the city of Toronto. But I, I went through your work, and what really, again, got my attention is the company sees this, the legality on a municipal basis, and how they're actually trying to work on a city-by-city basis to set up guidelines for rental pools. Why don't you speak to the importance of that? And I'll probably pivot over then into talking about the network effect and, and what that's all about, and again, who's got the competitive advantage with the network effect, Michael? Yeah, the, um, you know, clearly Airbnb needs to play nicely with uh, state and municipal governments. And, you know, they have done that um, in some areas where uh, local governments have tried to kick Airbnb out. Um, the, um, the, the populace and the citizenry have come back and said, no, we want Airbnb here in the aggregate. You've got hosts who, um, you know, make thousands of dollars of supplemental income. Uh, every month and they need that money and they put that money back into the local economies. Uh, and you've got travelers who, you know, really want these Airbnbs um, to be available to them. You, you do have, um, you know, a lot of instances where there are, you know, parties or there are, you know, tenants that, you know, maybe, you know, the neighbors don't like, and there is a, a, a system uh, within Airbnb and the community to modulate all that stuff. Um, and, you know, the company is very proactive about, about managing that um, uh, host reviews and guest reviews are a big part of the process. And, you know, this really does go like you talked about the network effect, what you really want to create, uh, you know, when you're sort of building this uh, marketplace is you want to create supply and demand and grow those at sort of roughly equal rates. And that's how you get, um, you know, a good renter experience. You know, if you grow supply too quickly, then you've got a lot of hosts on there who never rent out their property and they're not engaged. Conversely, if you grow demand too quickly, um, you've got a lot of people who can't find a place to stay. And so it's important for the company to invest in both of those sides of the marketplace, you know, sort of in equal amounts. Um, and as you get to scale, you really do create um, a network effect whereby Airbnb has all the inventory. There's no need for a traveler to go anywhere else. 
Um, and um, at the same time, if you're a host and you want to rent out your property, there's plenty of demand on Airbnb and there's no need for you to put your property, you know, anywhere else. Um, so, you know, we see that, you know, building over time and, um, you know, every sort of year that goes by that there's not, you know, a real principal competitor. Um, it just allows Airbnb to cement its lead. One quick thing, too, I should mention is the company has really not been very aggressive at leveraging, uh, you know, increased monetization. They're not charging hosts and they're not charging uh, travelers uh, a lot of fees and a lot of upsells that they could be, uh, a lot of fees and upsells that are common on other Internet marketplaces. And so because of that, you know, they're really trying to drive volumes here for the next several years. There's a huge um, profitability lever the company can pull later on down the road if they start to layer more fees and, you know, higher prices into the platform. You listen to Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. It is Saturday night. It's a show about money. We're here to help you have more of it. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show, my friends, about money. It's Hi Fi Radio. I'm Wolfgang Klein, Jack Hartle. My partner in your financial success. Pleasure to be with you each and every Saturday night. Uh, we are talking tech. We're talking media. We're talking digital payments, the, the shared economy, the new economy, the network effect, flywheels. Hey, hey, we're all learning something as we go. And that's what this business is all about. It's, just, it's a fascinating business when you get involved in tech because it's new. And as such, well, you learn some interesting stuff. Um, and, and isn't it fascinating, again, uh, uh, Maria Riffs, uh, one of our key analysts, uh, director and senior research analyst with Canaccord, covers Netflix. But uh, I'm not sure, I think it was in one of your pieces, Michael, uh, that I just read on the weekend, how Netflix approached Blockbuster Video and said, hey, why don't we partner? And uh, I think for a small sum of money, Blockbuster could have been a key partner in Netflix. Blockbuster laughed at Netflix and turned them down. And we know how that story unfolds. The only thing left with Blockbuster, Michael, if I'm correct, is on Airbnb. I think you're able to, to rent the last Blockbuster video for a party of some sort. Is that correct? Yeah, you're exactly right. I was going to mention that. I was, I was wondering where you were going with that, but that's exactly right. And um you know, it, it highlights two things. One is, uh, well, three things maybe. One is Netflix crushed uh, Blockbuster, as, as Maria correctly predicted. Uh, number two, um, you know, Airbnb has really unique inventory. Number three, it also, you know, they have a new product called Experiences, and um, these are targeted at travelers, but also at local um, people as well. Uh, and it's sort of like, you know, book a class with a chef or book a horseback riding tour. Um, and, you know, booking uh, the last blockbuster store in the country for a party is one of those. So very, uh, very interesting and sort of full circle. No, the, the, again, the, the experience, the experience, it's all about the experience. That, again, a new theme that, that, that does have legs. 
Uh, and again, the shared economy, as new as it is, it isn't that new. It's just been uh, morphing itself. In other words, taxi cabs and Blockbuster and uh, you know United Rental or Rent-A-Center, call it what you want. The, the rental economy has been around. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know Jack, in fact, was once uh, up for uh, buying the only lawnmower on his street and cutting cutting everyone's lawn. Hey, Jack. Yeah, why one not? Lawnmower, one lawnmower, one lawnmower, street, economy. one shovel. But well, who the, needs the, honestly, well, the rental. The rental business is a great business. Like you said, it's capital light. And these businesses that you're talking about, whether it's Lyft or Uber or Airbnb, they're just taking uh, the rental business to the next level through technology. Let's talk about the space then, uh, uh, the, the ride share. Uh, Uber, Lyft, uh, duopoly, two, two key players. Um, is it going to remain as two players, Rogers and Bell? Well, here we got Telus as well, Verizon, AT and T, Coke and Pepsi, or will will it be one player? How's that going to play out, uh, Maria and Michael? Yeah, to set the to set the table here, you know, I think um, when you think about the old process of catching a taxi, where you basically walk out onto the street and put your hand up and hope that an empty one drives by at some point, it's, it's crazy, right? To think that that was the way we used to do it, and when you think it about worked. It, Process. I like the so, sorry. It makes for good television, of course, as well. When you fight for the gab or it's raining, yeah. it's a lot of a lot of great television scenes around that. Exactly what you're talking about. But anyways, I interject. <laughs> and and also, if you if you think about um, the model of family car ownership, and you think about that second or third vehicle with a lot of families that's put to idle, you know, seventy five percent of the time, and is just really used for sort of flex capacity. There are so many use cases out there that can be made better and more efficient by ride sharing. So, you know, the ride sharing portion of these businesses is super important. You know, there's another portion of these businesses too, which is delivery in general. And, you know, especially Uber Eats where Maria is an expert. Maria, you should just maybe give us a second on sort of the setup in that industry. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, so unlike... As Mike said, unlike Lyft, which uh, focuses exclusively on rideshare, uh, Uber has two largest uh, segments, which are rideshare and food delivery. And uh, food delivery is really very competitive uh, business. And uh, there's been a lot of capital uh, flow into this uh, segment over the past two or three years or so. Uh, so a lot of uh, a couple of key players were trying to figure out how to sort of rationalize their operations uh, in there. But what we've seen recently, uh, especially since COVID started, is uh, trends uh, accelerated meaningfully. And if you look at what uh, Uber Eats kind of delivered, <laughs> it's pretty much triple-digit growth uh, in, uh, in 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 sales, and uh, it's, it's really it's really impressive. Wow. And this is like, this is really one of the key differences we're seeing between, you know, Uber and Lyft, because what we, what we saw is like Uber stock, you know, both stocks got, got killed when the pandemic hit and then Uber stock bounced back sharply. Uh, and part of that was driven by Uber Eats because while people were not out and about and being mobile, they were ordering a lot of food at home and Uber Eats was, you know, half of the whole company's profit. So, um, you know, Uber sort of outperformed Lyft here in the early, you know, during the during the pandemic. We think when we go into the post-pandemic world, whenever that is, that Lyft is likely to outperform Uber because they're just more levered to simply ride sharing. Um, so that's an important dynamic as well. And you know, we talked about monopoly power with Airbnb. We definitely think 
at least in the United States and North America, like these two companies have duopoly power. It's hard for us to see another competitor coming onto the scene and, and you know, taking a lot of market share because like, they just can't get funded. I mean, you know, people look at Airbnb or Uber and Lyft and say, you know, think that these two companies have like a really great head start. The other uh, thing I, I want to again get, get back in here because again I remember uh, going to one of our annual growth conferences that I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to attend each and every year. It's a it's a conference of, of leading grow, growing companies uh, in North America that can accord hosts an event in Boston every year. And I guess it was you, Michael, six, seven, eight years ago when a company called Grubhub that was probably in 2014. Yeah, Grubhub. Uh, was presented, and uh, I was sort of scratching my head in in, in disbelief. I, I don't know if this thing has legs to it. Lo and behold, Grubhub at the time was forty. It went to a hundred and fifty dollars in eighteen, only to correct back to below forty. That's now sitting at seventy five dollars. It's a stock that you still cover, Michael. But uh, is Grubhub going to maintain a, a market position, or is it going to become? Uh, the Sony Walkman and, and, and give it all to Apple, i.e. Uber and uh, uh, Lyft? Well, um, you know, what we've seen is uh, there's been a lot of consolidation. You know, uh, uh, you know, Maria mentioned that there's been a lot of money poured into the space and there's also been consolidation. So Grubhub actually um, is in the final throes of being acquired uh, by, um, by a UK company called uh, Just Eat and, um, you know, uh, that is going to sort of clean up a little bit of the competitive intensity in the food delivery space. You know, for a long time, Uber was um, was reportedly one of the bidders, uh, as was DoorDash, which recently IPO'd with a huge valuation. So you sort of have this situation where one of the major competitors in the U.S. got cleaned up. You know, another one emerged onto the scene with DoorDash. So it's a competitive business. It is definitely more competitive than the rideshare business. Um, there are some reasons for that, but, uh, but yeah, so, so, so Grubhub was a, was a great, you know, it was really the early one, the early pure play, uh, great client of the firm and you know, did a great job and is now sort of moving on to greener pastures. No, the other point that I would add, Mike, is just in the ride-sharing business, because it was a, a new business, uh, the duopoly was forming, obviously, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, Lyft and Uber were really aggressive uh, trying to, to gain market share. And their ad spending and their promotional spending, it was really not profitable, but they were obviously trying to, to grow their business as quick as they can. Coming out of the pandemic, uh, do you see that, you know, um, not maybe not being as aggressive on the ad spend and also the promotion so they can actually become profitable earlier? So what we saw, you know, right when these companies were coming out is that Uber had this dominant market share. Lyft was not happy with its one third. They were trying to get bigger. They were spending aggressively. Uber was spending aggressively, you know, coming back. They both um, really started signaling to one another that they were going to be happy with this two thirds, one third. The promotional spend dissipated. And the other thing that really helped them was uh, both companies were under a ton of pressure from their boards to cut costs and get to profitability more quickly. You know, when they hit the public scene, which was pre-COVID, the public market investors said, you know what, we really aren't super excited about how much money you are losing in the short term. So, you know, both companies sort of cleaned it up. The, the reduced competition was part of that. And, you know, the, the stocks should be set up, you know, well for better uh, operating leverage here going forward.
We're talking stock, my good friends. It is Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 in Toronto. We're going to take a quick break and get right back to the show about money that we put together each and every week just for you. Listen, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, more money talk. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Well, let's uh, let's pivot over into cryptocurrency. Um, give us a quick history on really the founders, if you don't mind. I've read a few, I recall a few articles on the founders of crypto and the meetings that they had with various interesting parties in crypto and Ukraine. But Michael, if you don't mind, give us a quick history on cryptocurrency, and then of course we're going to talk Bitcoin, uh, which right now is about thirty-four thousand. But that quote is stale as soon as you hear that number because crypto moves about five to fifteen percent a day. Uh, so please give us a quick history lesson on uh, crypto. Yeah, uh, it's a fascinating history, and you know the history of crypto starts with the history of Bitcoin, um, which um, was simply a computer program, essentially uh, uh, that was based on uh, blockchain technology uh, and blockchain technology in a nutshell is just a way to have transactions happen with no centralized authority. Uh, the transactions are verified and essentially allowed by the network. And then the network, you know, grows over time. And this concept, this idea uh, was developed by uh, someone or something or some group who named themselves uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. And this Satoshi Nakamoto, um, you know, was anonymous and has still not been revealed to this day. And nobody knows <laughs> if it's an individual or a group or whatever, but that started the Bitcoin um, ball rolling. And, you know, it's been going ever since, you know, Bitcoin now um, uh, as we speak here has a market value in total of around $640 billion. Um, all cryptocurrencies, you know, what we call digital assets have a total market value of, just under a trillion dollars at $984 billion. So um, just an incredible amount of, you know, enthusiasm for, uh, for the space in general. Let's, gentlemen, and Jack, please, you can pipe in. Likewise with Maria. Let's play for a moment. Let's have some fun with some funny money. Because uh, that's what's going on in this world, it appears. A trillion dollars. Uh, Jack, are we talking 12 or 15 zeros, first of all, on that? I think it's 12. It's 12, right? It's 12, yep. All right, we got 12 zeros we're playing with, plus a, a digit in front of it. Um, uh, so all the crypto in the world is valued at just in and around a trillion dollars. Central banks around the world to stimulate us, the economies globally out of uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, depression-like environment have invested some $30 trillion into the system. The global economy is about 100 trillion dollars so the economy is 100 trillion they just printed 30 trillion dollars directly or indirectly of new money borrowed money call it what you want 
and you have interest rates hovering in and around zero, and yet crypto is, well, it, it, it's dynamite, uh, and, it, and it's certainly making gold look pretty darn uh, much of a relic. It's interesting you mention that, because, because um, you know, when Bitcoin first started, I think most people thought of it as a payments mechanism, Wolfgang, you know, as a way to just, you know, send digital payments um, from one entity to another without, you know, needing to run it through a credit card network or a centralized uh, clearing authority. Um, what happened, though, was that the way that Bitcoin is mined, the way that it is sort of um, modulated and regulated by the network itself, made it expensive to to um, to use to use it for small transactions um, because there's a lot of electricity needed to kind of run these mining rigs that um, that that pull the new Bitcoin into existence. So. Bitcoin evolved, you know, the primary use case evolved from a payments mechanism to a store of value. And a lot of people are looking at it now as a potential digital substitute for gold. Uh, the total market value of gold right now is roughly $10 uh, trillion. And, you know, the price mm. of gold is not linked to what gold is used for. It's linked to what people generally think gold should be worth. Um, you know, that's different from the price of copper, which is used in cables, or the price of silver, which is used in industry. Gold is really mm -hmm. just what do people think it's worth. And it's perception, total perception. Yeah. Yeah, so, so Mike, looking at it as a store of value, like in the financial world, we do look at, you know, stocks, price to book. We look at ratios, pri uh, price to earnings, cash flow, all those types of things. So in the cryptocurrency world, um, even gold and silver, there's a ratio that's obviously historically relevant. Um, looking at the crypto world, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, is there a ratio that's used to, to value these types of crypto assets or, or how are they seen um, as a store of value in terms of ratios? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, the, the, the answer is like, like a, people have, have talked about that gold and silver ratio a lot. And, you know, the answer there is like when you, when you focus on that valuation, what you're saying is that silver's valuation should migrate away from the value it's, that's derived from demand for silver based on industry, right? And it should migrate away from that towards the store of value. And, you know, in that um, phase where it's migrating, that's a dangerous phase, I think, you know, because you always get people, you always get the risk of people saying, oh, it really shouldn't be a store of value. Let's bring it back to where it's based on industry. And I think, you know, when you, when you translate that over to crypto, you know, Bitcoin is really the only one that is focused on the store of value use case. Almost all the other, you know, digital assets, you know, Ethereum, the, the number two digital asset, which has a market value of 150 billion, um, and Tether, which is the number three with a market value of 25 billion. All these digital assets have completely different use cases from Bitcoin's use case, which is a store of value. And so therefore, any type of ratio of Bitcoin to the others, to me, is a, is a very dangerous you know, thing to be focused on. Yeah, new math is what they do every now and then. And some assets, it's truly about perception. Uh, it's very, very fascinating indeed. Uh, it's been a great, uh, great show, my good friends, Michael Graham, Maria Rips. Uh, you, you guys are amazing. Uh, and I really look forward to... Uh, well, having another year of success uh, with each and every one of you. It's a, it's a privilege to have you on the show. And uh, hey, 
Canaccord is a great company and uh, has some great talent, uh, which we like to leverage and offer to our clients. And of course, you are listening. I want to wish you all a safe weekend. Stay safe, of course, my good friends. We are going to get through this crisis and uh, sunny days are in front of us. Uh, be safe. Uh, enjoy. And any questions, you contact Jack or I, WolfgangKlein.com. That's it. Hi-Fi Radio, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. Hi-Fi Radio for the love of money. We'll see you next week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.